This podcast is supported by Domestic Beast, offering stylish collars, nap-tested dog beds, tasty dog treats, and dog dishes even you'd eat out of. Browse a wide selection of hand-picked products at DomesticBeast.com. Welcome to The New Disruptors, a podcast about how creators are using new ways of funding, making, and distributing their work directly to their audience. I'm your host, Glenn Fleischman, a technology reporter who contributes on a regular basis to The Economist and is the executive editor of The Magazine, an iOS publication by Marco Arment. On this episode, I talk to the filmmakers behind indie game The Movie, Lazan Peugeot and James Swirsky. The movie is terrific in its own right, showing the travails of the small teams behind Super Meat Boy and Fez as these two games head toward release. But it's the way in which the filmmakers funded, shared the progress of, toured, and released the movie that we talk about in this podcast. Hello, Lazan. Hello, James. Hello. Hi. Thank you for joining me from distant Winnipeg, uh, <laughs> far far away from me, not so far from other places. And you, you're just back from Iceland, if I recall right. That was just uh, a few weeks ago. Yeah, yeah. We put out the film uh, earlier this year, and we went on a little bit of a speaking tour. And, and one of the cool places that invited us was the Reykjavik International Film Festival. So we got to go to Iceland. That's like kind of the, one of the more incredible things that have happened because of the movie. And it, it was really cool. It's kind of a neat arc because you started with the idea of this, right? A little footage, and now we're um, nearing the end of 2012, and this has been your release year. You've started at Sundance, you went to distribution or, or film uh, tour of your own uh, that you booked, and then distribution, and now film festivals and theatrical bookings all in the same year. Yeah, it's, it's been, been a little crazy. Yeah, it's been busy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'll, I'll back people up through the process here. So you, so before this, this is your first feature-length movie that you've made. Yes. The longest thing we did prior to this was about 45 minutes, but it was mostly you know, shorts and commercial video up until this point. Well, and if I remember the story right, you came across in and in, in trying to figure out what your next project next project was going to be. You came across uh, a neat story about an independent video game maker, and when you started scratching the surface, is that when you found there was a huge amount of material to look at? Yeah, we were actually doing a for hire thing for the government here in Manitoba. It was a series about people in new media doing stuff. And it was a series of profiles. And one of the people that we spoke to was a game developer based here. His name's Alec Kaloka. He made a game called Aquaria with a partner. And that game went on to win the Seamus McNally Grand Prize at the Independent Games Festival, which is kind of like, like the Sundance of games. And when we went to to go, you know, shoot with him and we started, you know, talking to him and researching for, for this sort of short five minute piece that we we're going to do for the government about him. It just sort of struck us that his story was much more deeper than, than what we were sort of tasked and commissioned to do. He was making this game on his own. Um, and the game sort of ended up mirroring his, his creative experience. And he had gone through some ups and downs and depression and the game, which was a game about mermaids became this very dark tale about finding yourself and it was just fascinating to us just to see somebody number one 
indie games were new to us. Like we sort of knew that they existed, but we, you know, we didn't know anybody that made games. Um, so it was kind of cool that, you know, there, here's this guy, him and his friend make a game and it, and it was successful, but it was also just looking at games in sort of a personal way as, as personal expression. And so that was sort of new to us sort of at the end of 2009 is when, uh, when we did that piece and that sort of occurred to us that this is interesting, but there's this whole other world of game developers out there creating kind of similar to what we were doing. We were creating on our own, putting stuff online, but not to the extent that they were. And, and it was just a whole movement happening that we sort of got interested in. Yeah, because shortly after that, we went, uh, shortly after doing this piece with Alec and kind of being surprised by the story, we went down to the Game Developers Conference in San Francisco and we just kept on kind of gravitating towards the indie guys and just hearing story after story, kind of just like Alex, like people just kind of pouring themselves into their games and kind of using kind of games as a way to tell story and to tell personal story. And they were doing these new innovative things with their games. And it just was this kind of whole new world. But you have a meta narrative here too, right? Because you have your own journey of going through this and you have the journey of each of the game makers who had a personal vision to express. And they also all needed to either self-fund or find financing because they didn't have a conventional release system they could go through either. Yeah. (laughs) We didn't realize this at the time, but our journey ended up being incredibly parallel to to what they do (laughs) and what happens in their world. Although indie games um, have done incredible things in terms of distribution and building audience and all those things. So we were very much inspired as filmmakers just by what they were doing. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's kind of like this weird echo chamber going on. Like we looked at what was going on in independent games and thought, why can't you do this with film? It was being done in little ways here and there with film, but we looked at independent games and the whole idea of doing something like an open beta and to keep it like an open dev blog. And we were just seeing like these wonderfully honest painfully honest at times dev cycles where the guys were sharing their story as they made the game and then it was kind of building an audience all the way up until release and they were taking doing things like pre-orders and funding through that way and And funding through kickstarter yeah and that and that like they were you know the sort of whole idea of taking pre-orders and building your game with an audience through your website was you know even present before things like kickstarter so sort of the, like the film isn't really about that part of it, but, right. but that sort of world and kind of ecosystem ended up inspiring us on how we ended up releasing the film. Yeah, I think that's what's uh, that's what's why your story is doubly compelling. Is well, a you made a great film, as I've, I've said before. I really like the movie, and you tell incredibly moving stories and it happens to be the video game is the medium these people are working in they could be painters you know it could be guys in an atelier working with oil paint and i think it's a great thing to convey to people that that same sort of emotion and personal progression is part of it so you have the movie which is very you know it's watchable and great and tells a great story and then you have your own story on the side of it which parallels some of the story in the movie so you've got this whole thing but you went to kickstarter to fund the first phase of the film and i'm curious was this in two 2010, when you did that, was more unusual. You were already talking to game developers. Where did the idea come to say, we're going to do the, the seed round on, on this crazy new thing, and we don't know if it's going to work, but we know other people are doing some things like it? It was um, basically, yeah, Kickstarter was, I think, in month six or month seven at, at that point. So it was like really early on Kickstarter. And we first saw it with actually Phil Fish, one of the guys in the film. They were putting on an art exhibition at GDC, and they used it to sell tickets and make this party happen. And we just thought that that was such a simple idea. Like, dear internet, we want to make this thing. (laughs) Do you want us to make this thing? If so, please donate. It just seemed like such a perfect thing to use for a movie. When we did it, we initially did it for a goal of $15,000, which 
was not the budget of the movie, and we didn't think that was the budget of the movie, but we kind of used it kind of in the spirit of the actual word Kickstarter. <laughs> we kind of looked at what we wanted to do, and basically we wanted to kind of spend three to four months filming, collecting these stories. And we, Lisanne and I kind of both shoot, we both edit, we both do graphics. And so we don't need to hire out anyone. And we own all our own equipment from all our commercial work. So we literally just thought, you know, food, gas, lodging. And <laughs> and so it had this really pragmatic start. So what we did is we ended up shooting a, a short test piece uh, with Edmund McBillan. It's this uh, piece where he talks about the game Ether. And it's actually, actually ended up being in the film, but it was kind of this test piece to not only just use it for Kickstarter when we want to kind of like launch launch the campaign, but also kind of to prove to us that all these stories that we were hearing at GDC and through Alec and Alec's friends that we could actually get that on camera. And so we did that test piece and kind of put it up on Kickstarter and the response was incredible. We gave ourselves a goal of like $15,000 and we thought it would take about 30 days to get. We gave ourselves 60 because back in back in the oh, day, you right. could do that. Yeah, yeah, and uh, we ended up getting it in forty eight hours. Like That's it, great. it, it blew our minds. You know, that was a, a ton of money to us for, for the production. But not only the money aside, like just having that type of internet response was kind of like more than we've ever had in our lives. Yeah, it, it was really life changing. It sounds kind of I don't know. It might sound silly, but it, it was life changing. It was this moment where we could have gone down a path to continue doing for higher work for companies, which was you know it was great. But this was this moment where we had this big vote of confidence from complete strangers to say, "Hey, we think you're capable of making this work go." you know, make this project for yourself. And that was such a, a liberating, amazing thing. And it was news. It was so funny because it was news in our hometown, like mm-hmm. the Kickstarter campaign or what, what's this Kickstarter thing? Filmmakers get money from the internet. What, what is this? So it's funny how things have changed since then. But uh, yeah, it was a big moment for us. And that's really what, you know, pushed us to, to sort of wrap up all of our commercial work and, and start shooting. And we, we started shooting officially in September 2010. You know, that's a great moment you highlight, too, is right. you started when Kickstarter was still relatively young, and I was writing an economist feature. I managed to convince them that I thought crowdfunding was this big thing, partly because of the acceleration. So this appeared in... I want to say summer, uh, it was written in like April of 2010. Every time I talked to Kickstarter, they would say, oh, well, we just, uh, yeah, we have $5 million to date uh, that we've raised for, for firms. Oh, now it's 10. Uh, now it's 15. And I'd have to keep revising up to publication date. And you're thinking, okay, there's a hockey stick effect. It's already here. Uh, sorry, that's a, not a Canadian joke. It's a hockey stick effect already <laughs> here. And, uh, you know, because it was already accelerating then, it's continued to. The thing that I find fascinating about your project, since there's so many films that have come after is you were only a few months into Kickstarter. You hadn't tried it before. So your first feature film, you weren't known as entities. You're not Kevin Smith going to an audience and saying, we need to raise millions of dollars. You said, we're two independent filmmakers in Canada. We have this great idea. Here's a little footage. And the fact is, it seems like Kickstarter separates into a category of things that are incredibly compelling and people have no idea who creates it exactly and they jump into it, or things that are by known quantities, and people want those known quantities to do something more or independent, you fell into that first camp at this sort of perfect starting time, and people jumped on and said, yeah, we want to help you realize your dream because you've shown us enough of it that we can share in it. Did you get that response from people that, that they wanted to, they saw this and said, yeah, let's, let's make this thing happen, even though we don't know who you are? 
Yeah, yeah. It, 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 I think a lot of it had to do with, you know, timing. Like, it was kind of perfect timing. It, like, there, you know, nobody was exhausted by this idea of crowdfunding <laughs> yeah, at that point. It was a new thing. It was right. a novel thing. And I think the other element was we had looked around when we were thinking about starting this project, and there weren't any feature documentaries or really any documentaries at all um, looking into making video games. And looking at making video games in sort of a in sort of a sin- sincere and serious way, and so I think that's what sort of helped. It was an idea. There was a gap. Like if if we look at it like business students, there was a gap in the market. That's not really where we're coming from, but there was a gap. There was nobody had been telling these stories before, and I think that's sort of what resonated. That idea of you know following game developers mm-hmm. as they make something because it's this thing that we don't really know a lot about. That's, I think, what really helped the initial campaign. That's astonishing to me that there there hadn't been documentaries. And in fact, when I heard about your project, I said, hasn't someone done this before? Because there's hundreds of millions of people play video games. There's millions of people involved in, in all the aspects of the worldwide video game market, but no one had looked at the... I mean, I think a lot of it's the big studio thing, right? Is you have electronic arts and studios on that scale doing commercial products that have the same you know, essential joy as uh, uh, movies that come out of commercial studios. And you honed in on this area that's uh, where all the personal stories are being told at this smaller level. Yeah, it seemed like the right way to to approach that, like the, the art behind video games. Because certainly these stories exist on a AAA level, uh, but it's not as direct, you know? Like it's not like an independent game designer's, you know, one or two people, you know, working directly on a game. And as a result, it's just inherently that like you just can't avoid it. Like it's just that personal. But it just seemed to be the right way to approach the story, at least as like a first stepping stone. As two people from Winnipeg yeah. trying to make a right. film, about making video games, it was much more accessible to approach one or two person teams with nothing to lose. That mm. <laughs> you know that were working on their first big thing, as opposed to us, you know, calling up a AAA studio and saying, "Hey, <laughs> let us come film you." Yeah, no, no, trust us. Well, the it's risk is so much higher, right? I mean, these guys—it's amazing to me how much. And of course, we only see a fraction of it. How much they opened their lives to you for what? Almost a year and a half or so, right? That you filmed yeah, them. Yeah, I think that one of the great parts of the film is the fact that the developers, the subjects of the film, were incredibly open and honest and very vulnerable. Like you, you see their you know you see their ups and downs and and real downs and you see what that struggle is to make something we went through that stuff too (laughs) except that there wasn't a camera following us oh that would have been great that would have been like synecdoche new york you could have done uh had a a crew following you and they could have done kickstarter funding and on and on (laughs) oh dear (laughs) maybe maybe the next time around so you started filming you started doing filming in september 2010 and then and this is true i've I've seen of more in the film side than in other projects you came back to kickstarter to raise additional funds because you realize the scope and time and and cost. I know a lot of films will go and do seed money on Kickstarter maybe as proof of concept. Go to investors or or family or whoever and then raise sometimes the bulk of the funds they need. But in your case, you went back and said hey, we're, we're moving along. What was your pitch the second time around on Kickstarter, in a way that you know you're referencing back, we did this already. Here's why we're back again. We, we called it the final push. <laughs> basically, <laughs> the idea behind it was um, the movie was growing. Uh, the movie is growing into something that we always wished it, it was, but we were never too sure, like it, if it was going to be this narrative theatrical type of thing. And you know, festivals and large festivals started started to kind of become like a real pr- uh, probability, or not probability, but a real uh, potential for it. And so when you start to talk about, you know, theatrical releases, there's this whole other technical layer 
that you have to kind of add on to in order to kind of prep things for, for theaters. And these were things that we couldn't do ourselves. Like up until this point, we were doing absolutely everything. And so we basically kind of took what we needed to get done in order to go into theaters and added it together and debuted it with a trailer and said, you know, this is, this is where we're going. This is what the movie is shaping up to be and looking like, and we need your help to get it done. And there was also kind of this idea where, you know, we did our first Kickstarter a year prior to this. Like it was almost one year to the day. And a lot of people have discovered the movie in that year mm-hmm. because that first Kickstarter, it was actually a very small amount of people. Um, it was a very important uh, amount of people, and it, was, it seemed huge to us at the time, but it was only 378 people, I think, uh, that donated to the first Kickstarter thing. And that was enough to kind of give us forward momentum and to keep on going and to kind of give us this mandate. But from that first uh, Kickstarter in May 2010 and then the second one in June 2011, Uh, a lot of people had discovered the film because we had been putting out blog posts and tons of video in the meantime, and um, they had never really gotten a chance or this really formal opportunity to kind of invest in the film or to kind of pledge. And so we thought that it kind of stood a good chance and kind of made sense to ask for help again. And that was things like, that was uh, what, film timing and negative production and uh, your film score, the person you hired to score the film and all of that, all that end process. Yeah. 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 Well, it, it was basically a lot of sound stuff. And in that, it was at that point that we needed, we really needed help on that, that because we, you know, we had skills for everything else. We actually ended up doing the color ourselves, mm. but we didn't have skills in sound. Yeah. We, we could basically get it like 95% there. And then there's... $35,000 in order to get it to that last 5%. We talked a few uh, months ago, and, and you hit a point where you're right in the, the convergence between, or the uh, transition point, between when theaters are going from still doing some film projection to all digital. And so mm-hmm. you still had to make film... Pr- I mean, this will sound funny. Like I think in a year, if someone listens to this interview, would say, film prints? No one makes those anymore. But you still had to make film prints for, par- for your plans to distribute this um, when you went on the, on the tour. Oh, uh, we didn't we didn't blow it up to thirty five, but uh, you and and this is a reality. But when we say a film print, we mean uh, DCP, which is a different a different kind of print that you need to have encoded by um, a professional studio. It's something that you can't do on your own. And uh, what was what, what indeed in the end when we ended up touring, what was interesting is we ended up showing in lots of theaters that didn't have their their digital projectors just yet. Had mm-hmm. we waited a month, it would have been would have been beautiful. <laughs> It's much like, easier. So you had to bring you had to bring some actual analog film with you for that. Well, actually, no. the The messy transition was it was we toured all digitally, but oh. it wasn't the professional digital in all the places. In about I, I guess about twenty five percent, it was kind of four K projectors, the new standard, and all that stuff. And in the other seventy five percent, it was like a staples staples like LCD projector. Oh my thing. gosh! Oh, I didn't understand. That's fascinating. So you were able to to bypass the expense of, of actual analog film, but you still had to. Oh, so they're they're projecting. You plug a DVD in through a VGA connector or something, and it's showing yeah, up. like a Blu-ray through a staples projector, and it looked okay. Like yeah. it was fine. It was probably better than you know if you had had toured with DVD like dramatically. But had we waited like. A month, everybody would have been DCP, which is a superior way of, of showing the film. And just much more easy and much more predictable. And yeah, so much in, better. In, in that case, timing wasn't on our side. <laughs> That's something I think people will be able to consider too is if you think about making a film today, starting today, to not have to ever A, deal with chemicals, or B, deal with a substan- substandard digital format too. That's going to yeah. be a big difference, I would think. 
Yeah, now yeah. now it's just a hard, hard drive. You bring a thumb drive, and and you know you can play the movie, um, and that's you know amazing. And soon, I, I'm sure it's going to be that you don't even have to bring that. It's going to be in a cloud, and every theater <laughs> is just going to be able to pick it up. And there you go. So I'm getting ahead of the story a little bit. So we're talking about expense. So you got through this phase, and uh, you know I remember originally you thought you were going to uh, turn the film around in under a year, right? Until you start. <laughs> right. I know that's a joke, but you know everyone always. It's not just the ambition. It's like you know you think in your head we've done this kind of thing. We out the time so in the end you took what well, wasn't two years right it's like a year and a half from yeah. uh, from end to end and did your two t- kickstarter campaigns and if i remember it was it about it was over 30 grand the first time and 75 the second it ended up at about seventy-one thousand in the second uh, kickstarter which blew us away we had asked for 35 and we doubled the amount and that was incredible uh because in the end we totally under- underestimated our expenses oh my God. and we oh. used it all so throughout the whole process, throughout the Kickstarter campaigns, throughout all the 88 minutes of online video and, and all the things that we put out there, we always had pre-orders um, available through our website, which is incredibly helpful considering like the budget on this film is dramatically lower than most feature documentaries. And so that was really helpful. So prior to uh, releasing the film or premiering the film, um, we had raised about $150,000 through pre-orders. That's the combination of Kickstarter and just through our website. Oh, and that's that, phenomenal. That's, yeah, that's, that's amazing. That's that's what helped us make the film. A lot of our costs were the sound and all those things, but also traveling for six months, <laughs> and, and and all those sort of things were adding up, and our bank account was draining. So every time we got a pre-order, it was a beautiful thing. Well, I think that's something I like to emphasize when I talk to people about Kickstarter and in and any kind of crowdfunding approach is people, I think, sometimes think, well, like the Amanda Palmer uh, situation, you know, that's still reverberating where people are I sort of mad at her for raising $1.2 million. And they're like, that's all profit. And of course, you know, you, you run it through. She wrote this blog post detailing where pretty much every penny went. People pick that apart, too. But it's still, you know, there were it's expenses. At the end of the day, um, you know, you guys didn't make money in quotes off this first phase, you make money after the film is released and you sell it. Like, and I think at any scale, people are looking, it seems to me, for seed money that gets you covering the expenses you need to do the thing. But it's not profit, right? You you covered your bills and then you wound up with a product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and you, and you didn't, we didn't pay ourselves for two years. So that's sort of the other element of it. Well, I was, I, I was a great resonance of that in the film. And one of your, uh, one of your subjects is talking about, you know, living up there in the, in the, not in the Appalachians, but over in those great Smoky Mountains, I think. And he's eating ramen for, you know, every night and he's a diabetic and whatever. And I'm thinking the filmmakers at the same time, this is a long process. They're not getting paid. They're trying to cover living expenses and rent at best. Like, you know, are they eating ramen alongside this guy? Kind of. More, I'm more of a protein bar girl. So, um, yeah. Yeah. You know, it, it, it was tight, but it, it actually worked out really well. Like, we could have been further into debt had we done this completely on our own and we didn't have the support of the community. It would have been much worse. Like, we were in a good position, better than the, the game developers, in that we had, ha- we had those pre-orders coming in. The developers in the film didn't offer pre-orders. They financed completely on their own, which is even scarier. So it, it was incredibly helpful having, having those things able to be covered. And it was incredibly liberating to, to show up and, and premiere the film at a big festival and actually have broken even, like hard cost wise. Like yeah. we weren't in dramatic amounts of debt, which, which is good because they say, you know, you shouldn't spend money on your, your films. You should always get someone else exactly. to spend money on your films. But apparently that's what they say in like 
Film school. Do you own everything from start to finish? The copyright, the production, the editorial decision, the distribution, the release. And that's part of what you bought with your, with two years of, of uh, what are they called, hard living to get there. Yeah, exactly. Like, had we gone into Sundance and started talking distribution deals and been in debt um, and kind of took on a lot of, you know, a lot of debt and a lot of equity, equity partners, we... It'd be a different story. It would have, yeah, there would have been a pressure there to sell, to quickly pay off that debt or to make good on the investment of others. Um, but there was a huge amount of freedom being able to kind of walk into a deal knowing that you're already at break-even. And, well, break-even in terms of hard costs. Mm-hmm. We still hadn't paid ourselves at that point, but... <laughs> But it was, yeah, it's extremely liberating. And we wouldn't have had that freedom otherwise. And it would have, the movie would have rolled out in a completely different way had we not. Well, instead of debt and investors, you did have backers. Did you have to work to manage your backers' expectations as the project went longer than your original anticipation? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. We, we posted a lot. We posted every, I think it ended up every week or every second week over the course of, of making the film. So we posted what we were doing, the insight into how we were doing it, what was happening, and we tried to give people as much information as possible. And we, in the end, the fact that we had had that support and those that that core initial audience that dictated a lot of the decisions that we could make with the film, because we had been talking about the film for a year and a half, and we had promised these people, these people that gave us their money, (laughs) that, you know, they would get the film. We compressed the sort of the windows of distribution dramatically. Generally, a film that premieres at Sundance may not start showing theatrically until about now, which would be nine months. This is now like seven, seven, eight, nine months Nine months later. And then, you know, soon after that, it would go digital. And then a few months after that, it would go DVD. But because we felt this pressure to honor this, you know, this sort of sacred contract that, you know, this this thing, all this confidence that had been given to us, we ended up rolling the film out completely in less than six months after premiering at Sundance. Less than that, actually. I think it was five. Yeah, five. Five, and and that was done, and and and, and that there the, was sort of a, a an issue. We ended up doing it ourselves because we just felt like we couldn't find any traditional distribution partners that could do it as fast because we were so concerned with getting the film out for this core oh, audience. Right. Let me back up one moment there too, because that's I think a, a key point also is as we talk about um, you know one of the things i want to examine on this podcast is something i hear over and over again from folks like you which is that it's not always like the funding is one part it's great to be able to unshackle yourself from investors expectations that may not align with your own you have backers and patrons as opposed to people trying to dictate or maybe even own a majority percentage of your limited liability company whatever it is to make something Mm -hmm. but the other part is that distribution thing is is uh, you went to sundance with the film in early 2012 won the best editing award for documentary and uh if I remember right, I think it's 10% of the films at Sundance this year had some Kickstarter backing or, or crowdfunding backing, yeah. which yeah. is fantastic. And it shows, you know, it shows how people are pursuing this route. But typically, so you'd go to Sundance, and as a, if, if you'd funded this yourself, you would have gone there, you would have been deeply in debt, you'd be on your credit cards, maybe some investors, maybe some family money, and a distributor would say, yeah, we're ready to, um, we want to put this in, uh, you know, 200 theaters in North America or uh, over... <laughs> 20 theaters. Oh, 20 theaters. Okay, right. So I'm, I'm overestimating the uh, independent yeah, circuit. And they roll out more. Sort of, yeah. Okay. yeah. We're going to put in 20 theaters. We're going to pay you X dollars. We get exclusive North American rights. You can't release in any other form. But here's a check for some money when we do this. So you were able to say at that point, 
this isn't a good enough deal. It doesn't serve our backers. So, so that's what we're talking about in uh, taking charge of your distribution. Yeah, the, you know, we had those opportunities and not really knowing how distribution totally works. Like, it, like Sundance was a big learning experience for us and, and a bit, big education just talking to lots of people who have done this before. Um, but we sort of had sort of a few things on our side and a few things that we were concerned about. On our side, we had you know, $150,000 of people that had pre-ordered the film before it even existed, which is kind of exciting in a way that, you know, that's, that could be a, a smaller percentage of the eventual audience. We, so we had that sort of core group, but we also had that core group that we wanted to get the movie too fast. So it was this sort of, this sort of two-edged sword that we had going on. I mean, I think that's a, a that's a key aspect of it is that you then went to your own means to figure out how to get this in people's hands. It seems like you had two different things going out. Well, actually, it's three different distribution methods. And so tell me, you started with your own film tour, booking your own theaters. Yeah, we always, uh, like, we knew from day one that we loved the idea of a tour. Like, uh, Kevin Smith had done it the, the year before with Red State, and it just seemed like this this fantastic thing. And in the world of independent games, there's always these kind of game jams and meetups going on, and these wonderful... Uh, bringing together the communities to kind of work on a game or do some kind of event. And we thought this would be, you know, a wonderful excuse to kind of get the the community together in every city. Three, four months into making the film, we actually put up a screening request listing. And we ended up getting, by the time we got to Sundance, 3,000, over 3,000 screening requests. Oh my and so we let that kind of dictate where we're going to go in North America. And... and it, it was it was fantastic because it just gave us these wonderful leads of like 100 to 150 people already stated, you know, like six months ago that they'd like to see the film. And so we kind of ended up, um, yeah, starting off with the tour. Yeah, yeah. So we, we got back from Sundance. We decided not to, to sell the film, essentially. Freaked out a little, maybe for like a couple days. Hmm. And then uh, said, okay, we're going to pull ourselves together and we're going we're gonna to do this tour and we're going to do it quickly. And we ended up being lucky enough to partner with Adobe. Adobe had approached us to, to screen the film at marketing events and, and for their employees. And as we were talking to them, we, we said, hey, we really want to do this tour. It'll be really cool. You should be involved. And they said yes, That's great. which was... Uh, incredible, and they were incredible support financially, but also um, because they have a network, a network of creative people that use their products all over America, and and that was a useful thing to help us promote the tour. So we ended up booking it ourselves, um, and that was in uh, 15 cities, and we ended up doing uh, about 23 showings out of, I think it worked out that 13 out of the 15 cities were totally sold out, and it worked out to about seven, 800 people per city that came and saw the film. And so we traveled there, um, showed the film, uh, used Eventbrite and a bunch of other digital tools to, to make it happen. But it was a really small team. It was just James and I. And then we ended up hiring uh, someone that I used to work with at CBC in Canada to help us organize it and uh, and help organize travel and stuff. And so we did this this tour that turned out pretty great. Like It, it was a big risk because mm. who knew... Uh, if people would show up, but you know, a lot of people showed up and it was just this incredible thing to watch your film show for all these enthusiastic people that, you know, came out on a Tuesday night or a Wednesday night to come see your movie. And it was actually this kind of like weird phenomena of like rolling into a city on a Tuesday night and filling up the theater that actually led to a lot of our theatrical bookings because theater managers would notice (laughs) that like, why are all these kids at my theater? (laughs) 
on a Tuesday night uh, where it's normally there's nobody because theater managers also have like their own mailing list and their own listserv and all that stuff. And they started getting in contact with us uh, to actually book for theatrical engagements. And that kind of started the ball rolling, even though we did have some theatrical engagements already planned for the end of the tour. And that kind of got us into more and more theaters as a bona fide theatrical release where you give them the movie and they run it for a week and all that good stuff. You'd met people in person, found a story, then you go to the digital realm and you put the appeal out over the mass audience of the internet for Kickstarter, then you come back and you film the story, you go to Sundance, which is a real world thing, and then you have to come back and you know, you're editing the film digitally and it's just this push and pull that you're not in, it's not this entirely sterile um, online or digital experience, there's so much of a human real world component that goes back and forth through this whole process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that sort of how film works in a way, like it's not, it, like it involves people. <laughs> <laughs> well, it has to be a good story, right? You, you, yeah, can't, tell, you can't tell a story about the video game characters, you have to tell a story about the video game makers. Yeah, yeah. With, the, with, with people, whereas, you know, if you, if you worked in sort of another sector, you could probably do this whole thing just from your computer at home, and you yeah. wouldn't really need to see anybody. <laughs> well, a great example is the Linotype movie, which also funded through two Kickstarter rounds, and then they, he also booked, uh, or the filmmakers, I should say, booked um, uh, with the AIGA and other associations, went and booked uh, theaters and, and auditoriums to show the film, and it's now, I just got my copy on DVD, actually, just a few days ago. Oh, Very excited nice. to see it. And uh, that was their thing going in is it was you know it's a lot of time like well i'm very interested in the hot metal typesetting equipment you know that's now obsolete but of course when i saw the film it's all about people the machine is important it's the narrative structuring whatever but the film is all about people and i wonder when you make a film about video games people worry is it going to be about video games but the people who play video games know it's about the stories too there's always kind of a, a good portion of the audience where it's like a nice surprise where they didn't think they were going to like it or connect with it in any <laughs> other way which is always kind of you know kind of bad to hear but then when when you you find out that you know, they, they really connected with the fact that it was a universal story and it's just a story of, of making stuff and pouring everything you have into that thing and then sharing that thing with the world. We get a lot of that. <laughs> well, I figure there's 100,000 people who are like, Mom, Dad, watch this film. Now you understand what I do. And then 100 million people are, Mom, Dad, watch this film. Now you understand why I play these games. Yeah, there's been a lot of that, <laughs> which yeah. is fantastic. Yeah, we get a lot of great emails, which is pretty cool. Well, so okay, so we get to the point you've booked uh, you've you've booked theaters yourself. You've toured around, and then here's the you know again this the digital platform side of this is you want to distribute online, and there's the usual suspects like iTunes or Amazon or Walmart or all these places you could sell digital rentals or downloads. But you hooked up with these folks with uh, VHX with a mm-hmm. letter X, uh, who had just uh, in my research looks like they just transitioned from being more like a Vimeo or something. They just moved into saying, hey, we can be a platform to fulfill um tell me how it is working with with these guys where they're your back end they're sort of your uh, white label distribution on your website to for the downloads and the the streaming access we basically sort of how this happened was we were premiering film in new york um theatrically so it was opening at the ifc center and we were trying to pull together our digital release. We knew that we were going to be at this point on iTunes and on Steam, but we had to fulfill all the the digital rewards that we had pre-sold. And we also knew from our all of the backers that we had had 
that, uh, you know, 60% of those people didn't live in the States. Uh, the large majority of people that had purchased the film was, was worldwide. And so how were we going to fulfill all these digital pre-orders? Like, how was that going to happen? And we ended up hooking up through a tweet from Andy Bayo to Casey with the, the team behind VHX. So we met with them uh, very briefly. And then 10 days later, we ended up rolling out the digital launch of the film, which was on iTunes, on Steam, and on our own website. And uh, it's been pretty incredible. It was a kind of a, a weird way of, of launching a film. Like Steam, uh, for people who don't know, is one of the largest video game platforms in the world. Um, and, and iTunes is obviously, you know, iTunes great but our, our website has done really really well and and we ended up releasing the film drm free so that's without any sort of restrictions um it's not encoded in any way and you can put it on any device you it the film is now in 20 languages from our our website um it streams it downloads and it's the most sort of flexible element of uh rolling out the film and it's a, it's a different way of doing things but it's actually been you know really popular and i think a lot of people when they discover the film now, it's been it's been out for four months. They're discovering it through our website. They're discovering it through search, through Googling something about indie games or finding out because someone tweeted about it. They're going straight to our website. And it's just it's just been a really great way to share the film with people. Well it's it's this terrific thing too, is you get the removal of friction on both sides. You don't have to worry about how the technical side of streaming and downloading works. It's just something these guys handle. It's on your site and um, they handle the e commerce, I'm assuming. Also, yep. yeah. So this is, uh, I mean, I'm sure there's more than, you know, plugging it in and a little bit of HTML code there always has to be a little more, but you didn't have to solve that problem or give up rights to make it happen. But from the consumer standpoint, I went to the site and bought the film. If I had discovered it, I get to the site, I'm like, oh, it's 10 bucks. It's DRM free. Well, if I go to iTunes, it's got DRM. Well, oh, so if I just pay 10 bucks, I have access to it forever from the site and I can download versions with subtitles and come back and it just removed the friction for me as a, as a viewer as well. The whole idea behind offering from our own site was giving people the film in the way that they want to consume it. And, the, and basically, it's kind of the, this whole idea of thinking like a fan, which is kind of what actually drove our entire production process and how we communicated with everybody and our constant updates. And then when it came time for distribution, thinking like a fan member kind of just meant how would we like to consume a film. I would love it to be DRM free. I would love it to be able to put it on all my devices on multiple resolutions. And I want to be able to go back and redownload it over and over again. And it was just kind of this, this trust. You basically, you have to place, give people what they want and then place this large amount of trust in the audience, which was kind of the scary thing to do. But in the end, we were lucky enough that these wonderful things happened while we were making the movie like Louis CK happening. And then Aziz Ansari, uh, also done by VHX happened shortly after that, and it was kind of this this wonderful proof of concept, albeit on a much higher level with a much higher profile person, that, you know, if you give, and then the Humble Bundle, I should mention, also with DRM Free, but if you give the audience the choice to support something, if they like it, they'll support it, and, and they'll make it work. And so it allowed us to kind of be more confident in taking that, you know, jump in, in trust uh, of the audience, which kind of is what we always wanted to do, but it just felt better doing it at the time that we did. There's also a price advantage, it seems like, because you can price it more aggressively because you don't have to recover as much from the channel side, right? I mean, that was the point I think Louis C.K. made, that it's five bucks, but if this was distributed conventionally, I would have probably had to charge 20 to make it work for all the people involved in the distribution costs, but and it's $10 for the film, right, for any game? Yeah, yeah. And it, which and is not, inexpensive. 
Yeah, yeah. It's it allows we could price it at what we want, and then also um, control promotions as much as we want too, and discount codes, and it just allows us to be uber uber flexible with things. So we can see a mention on a blog post, and if it's getting a lot of traffic, we you know can kind of like hook up and do a promotion with them for one day or or something like that. It's just it gives you this wonderful tool set that if it was with a larger company, and there's definitely advantages of going through those other portals for sure, but it would be the system. You know, this kind of series of emails and things that you have to go through in order to try and do what you want to do. But with us, we just go to the back end of VHX and type it in and make it happen. It's it's fantastic. There is a physical component. It's a digital download, and I can buy it from uh, movie retailers all over the place, uh, like Amazon or iTunes. But um, but there's DVDs and Blu-rays, and you sent... Now, I, I've forgotten the sequence here. Have those already gone out to backers, or did you do digital downloads, and you're waiting for the special edition before those go to backers? We ended up doing... Uh, to uh, thank all the backers that, that pre- pre-bought the film before it came out, we gave everybody... Um, a couple different versions of the digital. So we gave them access to our website, to Steam, which was had some other features that the website didn't have at the time, uh, and uh, a copy of Super Meat Boy, one of the main... And the soundtrack. And, and the soundtrack. So we, oh, that's we, great. So to give them a digital package to say, hey, it took you know a year and a bit, <laughs> but here you go. I, I hope this was cool. And then anybody that had purchased a physical version, we had sort of two versions. We had like, you know, a straight up DVD or Blu-ray, this is the movie, and and then we also um, are making and, and still making a special edition, which will have sort of 80 minutes of new content that we're making that featured some other developers that we shot with that didn't necessarily work in, in the film that we made. The regular edition came out in September to all the backers and now is available online and, and ships worldwide. Region free, doesn't matter where you are, we just you can use it. And then the special edition is something that we're still working on. We thought it would be done faster, but... It takes time. That's the lesson of everything is no matter how much time, isn't that one of Murphy's laws is if you, no matter how much uh, any project uh, expands the film, the time allotted to it, but then it always overflows too. So at this point, maybe you folks between the two of you put in many thousands of hours over a couple of years. Uh, I wouldn't ask you about the financial since you're a privately held uh, organization releasing the film, but do you feel like this was, in the end, do you feel like now that you've gone through the sales cycle and the film festivals and so forth, was this worth your time? Do you feel like you got enough out of it either financially or, or spiritually or as uh, in, uh, personal growth to make the whole thing feel like a, a foundation in which you go on to your next projects? Completely. Like it's, We've learned so much doing this we're now kind of finally being able to kind of get a little perspective on it our heads are full of so much distribution knowledge and sales knowledge and project management knowledge and, that and you know making the film and making and just being better filmmakers that um i i'm really really excited to see what the next one is because we can make it so much better <laughs> and, and, and not kill ourselves in the, in the same way, but, uh, but just be smarter stressed. about things. Yeah. Knowing what we know now, like I, I, I wouldn't be as stressed out about the next time, but I guess that's always, you know, the first time you do something is the time where you incur a bunch of challenges and things don't work out the way you want them to. And then they do. Um, so yeah, like in the end, we've learned a lot. It was an incredible learning experience from making something to putting it in theaters yourself to retailing it yourself. I think we've, we've learned a lot. And then sort of financially, the film did really well. 
it did it was worth our time. I think we've we've paid we've definitely paid ourselves now. That's good. That's good. Worked out. That's always but, the thing at the end of the day is you know is is you know sometimes you do things for experience, but when you dedicate two years of your life to something, you hope to actually you know come out ahead of it too. Yeah. So it it did all all kind of work out. Yeah. But 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 absolutely like the the most actually probably important thing that that we were kind of walking away with in the way that we made the film and the way that we distributed the film is that the entire production of the film and then the distribution as well was kind of this constant conversation with an audience and that audience started as 300 people on kickstarter and then it kind of grew to by the time sundance it had like a mailing list of 30,000 people and now that mailing list is even bigger like 100,000 people that we know came to our site and put went onto our mailing list and we know how to get in touch with them and they know how to get in touch with us and there's kind of this constant dialogue and we're hoping that whatever we do next you know because we made this movie as something that we wanted to see as people who watch movies we wanted this movie to be out there and exist uh, we're thinking that the next movie that we want to be out and exist will also kind of jive with these people that have kind of joined us on this journey um, or just found out about us right at the end of this journey you end up building this audience that you hope to kind of take with you. If we did this movie in the dark and then once we were finished, we handed it off to a traditional distributor, we would never, ever have that connection with the audience. And we would never know who they are. They would never really know who we were. And they wouldn't really care about our next film in any kind of real way beyond, will I enjoy it? And it's just kind of this really powerful thing that uh, we don't know exactly what it means right now, but we think it's going to be kind of amazing to have that in our back pocket as we start the next project in six or seven months or whenever whenever we recover <laughs> after you've slept for several weeks in there i hope it's uh well this is true also even if uh, on the distribution end um as you talk about if you sold to a distributor but even if you'd gone with say itunes and decided you know or netflix had cut you a deal and said we want to stream on netflix for six months exclusively here's some money you wouldn't have those people's email you wouldn't know how to reach them they wouldn't have opted in to let you contact them again and that seems to be another way in which you've you've gathered your audience to yourself so that you know these people. I always feel kind of like a multi-level marketer whenever we talk about like <laughs> opt-in mailing list, but it's so important. It's like, well, those people are opting in. They want to be. I mean, this is the advice. Whenever someone comes to me about Kickstarter, I say either you have to. I was talked at the outset is either have to have something that's so compelling it's going to knock down people's defenses and everyone's going to talk about it, or you have to have a, an audience that knows what you do. And you know, you started at that one thing with a compelling story. It knocked people. Down down and they they gave you money in, in large quantities on Kickstarter and now you've got both the next time you'll have a compelling story and you'll have a hundred thousand people to say we have another thing like the thing we did what do you think mm-hmm. and hopefully like a percentage of those hundred thousand people will be like yeah we want to see that and of course there'll be a percentage of people that'll be like nah not really uh, but <laughs> oh they'll be drop off oh, yeah. <laughs> but you have that advantage is that you know this is the seems to be the multiplying effect of crowdfunding is in part that you don't need ten thousand or hundred thousand people to fund you you need hundreds to thousands are often enough and then bigger projects then you need thousands to ten thousands I, I mean Amanda Palmer had uh, I think twenty Five thousand people, some giving as little as a dollar to get to over a million, and um, that's not a huge number of people for a for a mass medium like music or film. No, no, not at all. Like what we started with three hundred people, and then our second one was I, I think like seven hundred or, or no, something. No, it was over a thousand. Was it over a thousand? Okay, yeah. yeah, and like yeah, so the numbers were never huge, but it enabled like this amazing thing to you know happen to us. And completely change our lives, and um, but yeah, but the numbers at, at every point, like up until release, were very modest, and it 
it kind of created some cool stuff. I think I think we sort of look at this as I guess there's a sort of tension like when you like with traditional film and the traditional film world in that we appealed to uh, what people would call a niche audience and then grew from there. And then, oh, you know, there, people could look at our film and be like, oh, it's 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 a niche film. It's not a film for everybody, but I think what's happened with the film is if we've been able to grow the audience to something and, and appeal to a lot more people through the film than what we initially thought. And, and so it's sort of a, a slightly different approach. We're not trying to spend tons of marketing dollars trying to get everybody in the world to like our work. We're spending time and effort to get at least some people to like our work. And, and I think the power is in the, in the niche like I think that's sort of where content yeah. is. Yeah, I, I don't like the the word niche because it makes it seem like really small and in small potatoes. But on the internet, a niche is big. <laughs> like a niche is huge. Well, it also when you remove the middlemen who aren't necessarily adding value. So you have VHX as a as a middleman who is absolutely adding value. This is kind of when we talk about Kickstarter, Etsy, or VHX, or all, you know um, all the music distributing um, uh, platforms. Um, this is part of what this podcast is about: is that these new kinds of platforms they want a tiny piece. They don't want fifty percent. They don't want to stop you. Uh, they don't want to um, even necessarily curate what's happening too much because they want to have people reach their audiences. And I, I think. Think about that, that um, you'd have to make, have brought in 10 or 20 or 50 times the income or, or gross revenue if you'd gone about this another way to receive the funds that you have gotten from the film. With this model, you can actually have not modest, but relatively modest dollars come in and mm-hmm. still feel like you made the, the right living from it. We don't have giant box office numbers on the film. Like the film ended up doing box, off- box office wise, like $50,000 theatrically. And then the, the tour did much better. It looks modestly like a, like in, in the film world, it looks like eh, they did okay as a, as a documentary. <laughs> But in terms of online and the power of online, um, it did incredibly well. And we reached tons of people. It's just not a lot of film people know about it. <laughs> it's good. Well, be a sleeper, and then no one will come and try to co-opt what you're doing. That seems to be, <laughs> that seems pleasant. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk about this. It's such a, and, and I should reiterate to listeners, too, it's a great film. We talked about all the mechanics here so much, and, and at the outset I mentioned it, but um, it's, you know, I was crying during the movie. I'm laughing. It's identified with the people in it, and it's, it's great stories and really fascinating, thoughtful people where you'd say in a previous generation, these guys might be in an attic somewhere writing a novel for, you know, seven years and wondering if a publisher will ever sell it and here instead they're you know sitting in front of a computer screen and, and with bleeding fingers practically um to make this vision into a reality but it's it's the same story just different um different components i think mm-hmm. completely mm-hmm. so com is where you get it directly and i have been talking this time with uh, lizanne Peugeot and james swirsky the makers of indie game the movie thank you very much oh thanks for thanks having for us, having us. This is The New Disruptors, a podcast from the future, appearing today on the Mule Radio Syndicate. You can find us at muleradio.net, where you can see other podcasts from other creative individuals. And if you're interested in sponsoring this show, visit sponsor.muleradio.net for more information. Our theme music is composed by my dear friend, Jeff Tolbert, and I'm Glenn Fleischman. We'll be back with another set of creative people next week. Thank you.